This morning, we're uh, continuing in the series that we've been going through called The Art of the Unordinary. And as I was looking at this, at this and thinking about that phrase, the art of the unordinary, for me, a, a bunch of questions came to mind. Number one, if we are going to talk about the art of the unordinary, well, what is ordinary? And have, have you ever thought about in your life how you define what ordinary is? When we talk about something being ordinary, we mean it's, it's normal, it's part of the rhythm and flow and routine of what we know and understand. It's something usually that we're really familiar with. Now, the problem uh, in my mind with defining what's ordinary is we often don't know what ordinary is. Because so often ordinary is defined by the context that you've grown up in. So think about your family, the family you grew up in. Your family had ordinary ways of doing things. They maybe had rituals and traditions around Christmas or Easter or holidays. Maybe your family even had unique words or phrases you used. And, and here's the thing. You didn't realize that what you thought was ordinary was actually unordinary until you stepped in a new community. So here's, here's what I mean. Maybe you go to a new job. Maybe you're a college student who moved into the residence halls and you discover as a college student in the residence halls that your roommate does things that are very different than you. And you feel like what you do is ordinary and what they do is unordinary, but you don't know it until you have something to contrast it with. So case in point, my freshman year of college, uh, I'm heading to the, uh, the dining center with a bunch of friends and we walk in and they're serving this meal that is uh, tomato soup with this sandwich that's two pieces of bread with cheese in the middle that's grilled. You would call that a grilled cheese, right? My family growing up called it a cheese toasty. So... <laughs> We, we walk in, I'm a college freshman, I am a 19-year-old man, we walk in and I go, yes, tomato soup and cheese toasties, and my friends look at me and they're like, are you five? What, what, what is a cheese toasty? And I was like, you, you guys know cheese toasty, it's like the bread and the cheese and it's grilled, and they're like, and that's a grilled cheese. I didn't know that that wasn't what they were called until I was in college, right? And it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, I didn't know, right? Or, or I get married and I discover that the way that I drive is not ordinary, right? My... <laughs> My wife, like if we're driving in Sioux Falls or Minneapolis, a big city, if she sees brake lights three quarters of a mile in, in ahead of us, she's already got a hand in my arm going, they're stopping, they're stopping. And I go, I know, and ordinary people will stop a thousand yards, not three quarters of a mile, right? Or vice versa, when she's driving, I like to tell her the ordinary, normal way to go. You're going to turn here or you're going to turn there. And she likes to go the way that she likes it. And so there's this battle with what I think is normal and ordinary with what she thinks is normal and ordinary. And there, there's tension there, right? So I say that because if we talk about the art of the ordinary, two things. Number one, first, we have to learn how to recognize what do we even mean by ordinary? And secondly, in that driving example, when my wife is in the passenger seat, there's an element of trust and surrender and submission that says you can drive how you see as being ordinary and normal and right. And I have to trust that you're going to do what needs to be done to keep us safe. And so when we talk about the art of the unordinary, what we're talking about is this life that God has invited us into. And it means a couple things. One, we have to define what is that unordinary life that God calls us to. And two, will we be submitted and surrendered to what God calls us to? So here's the series summary so far, as I would put it. The art of the unordinary is this. It's to live surrendered to God's plan, purpose, and priorities in his power and for his glory. That, that is the unordinary life that we're talking about. To surrender your life, to say, God, what you value, 
your priorities. God, your purpose for me, I'm surrendering my life into your hand. And, and behind that, though, is this question that I want you to wrestle with today is, do you trust God with your life? Do you trust him? Because when we talk about surrendering our life to God's purpose and his plan and priorities, that means letting go of my purpose and my plan and my priorities and saying, God, I trust that what you have for me is better than what I have for me. So if that is what an ordinary life looks like, surrender to his plan, purpose, and priorities in his power and for his glory, here's this other question that I want to push into in detail today. What in the world does this look like? And how do we actually step into living the unordinary life that God calls us to? So as we walk through this, I want to begin with this first point. If we are going to live an unordinary life in the way that God's word calls us to, we have to, number one church, we have to resist the ordinary. We have to resist the ordinary. And as we flesh this out, we're going to look at the story of Gideon in Judges chapter six. So so would you walk with me through this uh, opening story of Gideon's life? Judges six, verse one. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Did you notice the opening phrase of that passage? It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of God. And what you discover as you read the passage is that what they did that was so evil is they rejected God as the one true God, and they begin to worship all of these idols. Now, if you read the whole book of Judges, you'll discover this, this cycle that tends to repeat itself in the life of the people of Israel. They find themselves in a place of crying out, right? In Egypt, they were in slavery to the Pharaoh of Egypt and they cried out and God heard and God delivered them. Now, what you see is that when God delivers them, Israel enters this place of blessing. They enter this place where the land is abundant and things are good. The problem is they grow complacent. And when they grow complacent, they begin to look at all of the cultures around them. And they begin to look at the gods that these cultures serve. And they begin to ask these questions about like, why don't we serve that God? We, we, we can't even see our God. I mean, yes, he's in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, but we don't get to go in there. But this God of the Amalekites, Baal, we, we can see and he seems tangible. And, and, and then the Amalekites and the Midianites, they, they tell Israel, listen, if you just worship our God, if you offer the right sacrifices, our God will do what you want him to do. And so Baal, the god of uh, one of the ancient Near Eastern gods that was uh, common at this time, Baal was the god of fertility. And so if you offered the right kinds of sacrifices, he would bless your land so that it would produce abundant crops. He would bless your family with lots of children. And so the, the, the cultures around them said, just worship our God and he'll bless you with all the things that you need. And the temptation of an idol is this, it's tangible. 
You can manipulate it to do what you want to do. And so Israel finds themselves abandoning God and worshiping idols, and it leads to a place of oppression. And church, I want to submit to you this, this, this hypothesis, that we are still prone to idol worship today. I, I don't mean that you have a golden statue in your closet at home. If you do, that's alarming, and you should have a conversation. What I mean is we often look to tangible things to provide what only God can provide. And so God calls us to life with himself. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. He says that, that in him is the fullness of life in the gospel of John. And yet we see that and we know that scripture teaches that true flourishing is found in Christ. And yet we look at tangible things like financial security. If I, if I can just get enough money in my 401k, if I can just get the right positions and the right promotions to make enough money, then I'll feel secure and then I'll feel like my life has meaning or purpose or significance. Or, or if I could just find this right person to be in a relationship with, and if God would just bless me with marriage or whatever, I, then I'll feel like I have a good sense of identity. I'll be and have the things that I want to have. And we begin to look at all of these tangible things apart from God to provide for us the things that we're searching for. And I think it becomes a modern day form of idol worship because we begin to look for what only God can provide through all of these tangible things. And here, here's the problem with an idol. An idol promises what it can never deliver. That, that's, that's how we get pulled in, right? Money has this thing of like, you have control, you have safety, you have security, you have meaning, people will respect you if you're seen as successful. And, and, and we get lured that way. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. You can fill in the blank with the other thing that you feel tempted to pursue to find meaning, purpose, significance, and identity. The problem is, apart from Jesus Christ, even those good things become corrupted when we try to find meaning, purpose, and significance in them when only God brings us true flourishing. So church, if we are going to live an unordinary life, we have to resist the ordinary. And what is culturally ordinary is this, rejecting God's words, ways, and wisdom, right? That, that is what's culturally ordinary. Culture looks at scripture and says, well, this is a pretty outdated book. You know, it was written so long ago. Does it really apply today? And church, as believers, what we believe is that this is the very truth and the word of God. And that if we'll align our life with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus in relationship with him, that we can be transformed and made new. And yet the call of culture is lay aside God's word and live however you want. If we're going to step into an unordinary life, we have to first resist what is culturally ordinary. We have to resist and reject setting aside God's word, God's ways, and God's wisdom. It's in relationship with him, aligned with his word, where true life is found. And for Israel, the consequence of choosing to worship the idols was a place of brokenness and a place of oppression. Because the God that they pursued couldn't save them couldn't provide for them was powerless. And in the same way, church, when we reject God and begin to pursue meaning, purpose, and significance in all of these other places, we experience a similar kind of brokenness and oppression. But here's God's grace. That even when Israel wandered from God, he still pursued them and he seeks to bring them back and he seeks to redeem them. And so in verse six, when Israel cries out to God, it says that he raises up a prophet and the prophet goes to them and he reminds them, didn't God bring you out of Egypt? 
And Israel is in this place of brokenness and oppression. They're in a place where the Midianites have impoverished them. They're taking all of their crops. And what the prophet reminds Israel is that the God who led you out of oppression to a place of freedom, that same God can lead you to freedom again. Will you trust him with your life? But it means taking the unordinary step of rejecting the ways of culture to align their life with how God would have them live. So church, if we're going to live an unordinary life, first, we have to resist what is culturally ordinary. Secondly is this. If we're going to live an unordinary life, we have to recognize that God calls the unlikely to have unordinary influence. Here's what I mean by that. I, I, in the series summary, I said that the art of the unordinary is living life according to God's plan, purpose, and priorities. Now, when we live according to God's purpose and priorities, what we're saying is the meaning of my life, the thing that I live for is not my purpose, but it's what is God's purpose for me. And when you read scripture, when you read the New Testament, you see that God calls us into relationship with himself. And then as we experience redemption, transformation, as we are made new in Christ, what does Jesus tell the disciples? Matthew 28, he says, now go in and make disciples. To make a disciple means that we go and say, hey, let me help you learn what it is to follow Jesus. It's Jesus in the gospel of John to the disciples. He says, as the father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And church, if we are going to live an unordinary biblical life, we have to recognize that when God redeems and transforms, he says, I want you to join me in the redemptive mission of what I'm doing in the world. That you were likewise to go into broken places and to bring the hope and the transformation of the good news of what Jesus Christ can provide for you in salvation. That is an unordinary life. And what we see all throughout scripture is that God calls unlikely people to have unordinary influence. But let's continue in Gideon's story. Judges 6, 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, uh, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the first thing that we see here is that Gideon is an unlikely leader, right? If you were going to hatch a plan to bring about spiritual revival and, and to see people turn back to God, you or I might step into a situation and go, okay, now who's the strongest clan in Israel. Now, who's the, the strongest leader of that strongest clan? Let's put them in power. And yet God comes to Midian, uh, someone who's the, from the weakest family in the weakest clan, literally Gideon has no national influence. And, and the Lord comes to him and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, uh, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, did you notice it says that Gideon is in a wine press? Now, an ancient wine press probably looks something like this. It was a hole, a depression in the ground. And so Gideon has gathered some wheat. He took it to the wine press and he is threshing wheat in the wine press. 
And, and the reason it says he's threshing wheat in the wine press is so the Midianites don't steal his food. And so literally Gideon is in a place of fear. He's in a place of hiding, hoping the Midianites don't find him. And God comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's probably like, uh, Lord, I'm in a wine press. I'm threshing my wheat here uh, because I don't want someone to steal my lunch. This, this is not the posture of a mighty warrior, right? A mighty warrior is not the one who is hiding down in a hole, threshing his wheat. No, the mighty warrior is the one who's leading a course of action. That's not Gideon. And yet God is calling Gideon, this unlikely person, to have an unordinary level of influence. And God is going to use Gideon to have a powerful and redemptive influence in the nation of Israel. God's call to Gideon, in fact, will be to go and lead people into repentance, turning back to God, and into deliverance from the hand of Midian. And when God comes to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, God sees potential in Gideon that Gideon doesn't see in himself. Here's the thing, church. I want you and I to recognize that like Gideon, we are called and we are sent by God to go and make disciples. We are sent to go and have a redemptive presence right in the places God has us. In your workplace, and maybe your workplace is really toxic and your boss is difficult and your coworkers are hard. God has placed you there at this time, at this place, in this season for a purpose. And so often in those moments, we're complaining about all the things that aren't going right that we miss asking, God, what might you have me do in this place? Or, or maybe you were in a dysfunctional, broken family system and you're like, God, why can I not be freed from this family dysfunction? And God's saying, I want you to have redemptive impact and influence here. I want you to bring the light and the hope of Jesus Christ right to that place. And I think what happens, church, is often we respond like Gideon's gonna respond. Because Gideon's response, when God says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, Gideon doesn't go, yep, here I am, let's go. Notice how Gideon responds. Let's look at this, at Gideon's hesitance response. Number one, Gideon makes accusations against God. The Lord calls him, and, and Gideon says this, pardon me, my Lord. And, and don't you love how Gideon pretends to be, like, kind of respectful? Excuse me, Lord, pardon me. He says, but, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? God, if you are here, why is Midian stealing our crops? If you are here, why are we being impoverished? He says, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. And notice the, the accusation that Gideon makes. Gideon says, we are in a hard season. We are in a difficult place. And God, you abandon us. The, the subtext is, don't come now telling me you want me to do something for you. You left me here. And, and maybe, church, you're in a similar season of hardship. You've lost a job. You, you've had a difficult thing with a family. You've lost a family member. You've had a bout of illness. You have been struck down by a season of affliction. And you go, redemptive influence? I, I don't even want to have redemptive influence. I'm just trying to survive in this place where God has abandoned me. The problem is that God did not abandon them. That's not true, but Gideon, in the midst of his pain, makes this accusation about God in a difficult season. Here's where Gideon gets it wrong. 
Gideon lets his circumstances define God's character. Gideon says, I am in a hard circumstance. That must mean God has abandoned me. Gideon's got it backwards. And church, here's what culture tells you, that your feelings are true and right and good. And so if you feel it, it must be true. The problem is our heart is deceitful above all things and our feelings lie to us all the time or misdirect us. It's only part of the story. So church, what we have to do is let the character of God revealed in scripture redefine our circumstances. Do you, do you see the difference? It's, it's a fundamental difference. Because just previously, the prophet that God raised up, raised up reminded the people of Israel, remember that God led you out of Egypt. And Gideon forgets all of that. And he's losing hope in this place. And he says, God, you've abandoned us. Not only that, but... Gideon moves from accusations against God and he begins to make excuses for why God can't use me. He goes, I don't have any influence, right? Did you notice what he says in uh, verse 15? He says, pardon me, my Lord. Again, there's that phrase, right? Excuse me, God, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. Gideon says, I don't have any influence. And, and when I think about it, church, this is a pattern I think we fall into all the time. I can't have any influence in my family. I'm just one of the kids or one of the cousins. I'm not the matriarch or the patriarch of the family. I, I, I don't have any influence. I'm not in management. I'm not an administrator. I'm just a student. I'm just an employee. I'm just, I don't have any influence. And yet if God has placed you somewhere, he has called you to have redemptive influence in that place. And so many times we're making excuses where God is saying, I want to unfold a redemptive plan in my purpose, according to my power, so that God can be glorified and people drawn to him. And finally, in all of this, Gideon just responds in an outright place of disbelief. He asked God in verse 17, he says, uh, Gideon replied, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Now, I'm not saying Gideon's in disbelief because he asked for one sign. If you read the, the, the whole narrative, Gideon asks for a sign three times. Verse 17, he asks for a sign. God gives him a sign. Then again in verse 36, Gideon lays out a fleece and asks for a sign. And then three verses later in 639, Gideon goes, okay, you gave me two signs, but I need one more sign. God gives him a third sign and Gideon is still so fearful that in chapter seven, God sends Gideon a fourth sign that he didn't even ask for. Right, And so many times, church, in the middle of a place of accusations against God, where we feel let down by God, where we feel like he's abandoned us, when we make excuses, when we respond in disbelief, we're led to a place of despair right in the middle of the place where God wants us to have redemptive influence. Here's one of the key things I want us to take away today. The time and place where you feel frustrated and defeated may be exactly where and when God has called you to have a redemptive presence. Let me say that again. The time and place where you feel frustrated and defeated may be exactly the place where God has called you to have redemptive influence. And my tendency, church, and maybe you identify with this too, my tendency is to get discouraged by despair in a place where God says, I'm just getting started. And as I watch Gideon's story unfold, as I watch Gideon's response unfold, I found myself being convicted by so many of the ways that Gideon responded. 
And yet God says to Gideon, after all of those things, he says in verse 14, he says, go in the strength that you have. And Gideon is sent. And that's a powerful moment where God says, Gideon, I want you to go. And I want you to be faithful and I want you to respond obediently in this. And and the phrasing there is interesting. God says, go in the strength that you have. And and I read that and I go, well, God, I don't have a, a whole lot of strength. I don't have a whole lot of capacity or competency. But notice God doesn't say go in your own strength. He says, go in the strength that you have, which raises the question, what strength do you have? Because I, th- I think in our culture, a pull yourself up by the bootstrap culture, we hear that and we go, well, then I have to do this in the strength and limited capacity I have. But what we miss is God says, doesn't say go in your own strength. He says, go in the strength that you have, which is the strength that God provides. Look what happens in verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you. When God says, go in the strength that you have, he says, Gideon, you're missing the fact that in the middle of those excuses and accusations, I'm going to be present with you in the midst of this calling. And finally, in Judges 6.34, it says, then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And here's the thing, church, the thing that God empowers or calls you to, he empowers and equips you for. So if God has placed you in a difficult season and a time and place, and you sense this call to have redemptive influence, to help other people know what it is to follow Jesus, right in the middle of that broken place, know that what God calls you to, he will empower you and equip you for. And so when God says, go in the strength that you have, he's saying, get in, recognize that my strength is with you. Now, what I like to do, I say, God, if you would just call me to where I feel comfortable where I feel competent and that fits my capacity, that'd be great. Because in that place, I feel pretty well in control, right? And yet what God often does is he says, okay, you see that place? He goes, now I want you to step beyond it. And I go, yeah, but God, the problem is I have to trust you there. Like here, I don't have to trust. I'd, I'd rather stay right here. And God says, no, I want you to step beyond that into a place where you have to rely on me. And and this is what happens with Gideon, right? As Gideon seeks to live uh, an unordinary life, he has to refocus, this is point three, refocus and recognize it's not about him. And what happens is that God hatches a plan that is just, is is mind-blowing. Judges seven, let's read this, one to eight. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will send them out there for you. If I say to you, this one shall go, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go, uh, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from the cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home. They kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. And what we see as we refocus is that God does things in a way in which God gets the glory. Because when you read the first part of chapter seven, you look at this and you go, this is the worst military plan in history, right? 
So at the end of chapter six in verse 34, the spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon. He blows the trumpet and he gathers an army. And, and, and we're told at the beginning of chapter six that the Midianites are like a plague of locusts. They're almost uncountable, right? This is an army of huge proportions. And God says, I want you to gather an army. And now Gideon gathers an army of 22,000 people that are still likely the underdogs. Now, if you're Gideon, this is the moment where you deliver the rousing speech, right? This is the moment where Gideon should stand up and say, troops, we've got this. We're going to go and we're going to win the victory. And instead, God says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand in front of the army and ask, if anyone's afraid, tell them to go home. If I'm Gideon, I'm like, Lord, can I have another sign? And yet Gideon does this and he goes in front of the army and he says, okay, if, if you're afraid, I want you to leave. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, I mean, who's going to admit that they're afraid, right? It's an army type setting. Who's actually going to admit? Maybe it's a couple hundred people. And Gideon makes this announcement and 22,000 people stand up and walk away. What do you think Gideon is thinking when that happens? Like two thirds of his army leaves. If I'm Gideon, I'm going, oh no. Right? But did you notice what God says in verse 2? He says, Gideon, I have to weed out the army because if you go and win victory, Israel's going to think they did this on their own strength. But Gideon, it's not about what you or Israel can do. It's about who I as God can do for you and in you and through you. It's not about you, Gideon. And so God thins out the army because what happens when they have victory is that there's no other explanation but that God gets the glory. And the purpose in all of this is to point people to God. And so often when we do things, we say, God, I want you to lead me to a place that lifts me up. And God says, how about I lead you to a place that lifts him up? And if we're going to live an unordinary life, we have to refocus in this way that says, it's not about me, but it's about me pointing people to Jesus. And sometimes God will call us to do things that feel crazy and unordinary because at the end of the day, the only explanation can be that God showed up and did something that we could never imagine. And, and I think secondly, what happens here is this military strategy of weeding out the army down to 300 soldiers, it develops a place of total reliance on God's purpose, power, and timing, right? There, there's no illusion that they can win victory with 300 soldiers unless God shows up and does something amazing. A scholar and theologian uh, in his work on the book of Judges, K. Lawson Younger, he says this, he says, God must bring his servants to a moment when all human confidence is stripped away, when they sit silently in humble adoration of God as the one who is totally sufficient against all odds to accomplish his divine will. Think about that. God must bring his servants to a moment when all human confidence is stripped away. That means a loss of control. That means that God will often lead me to places that strip away my confidence, to places where I go, God, if you don't show up, I don't see a way through. And what I find, church, is that the place where I'm ready to give up hope, God says, I'm just getting started. The place where you don't see a way through, God wants to bring redemption and transformation and reconciliation. And church, I so believe that there is no context, no person, no situation beyond God's ability to redeem in his grace. We're going to do church in here. Are we ready? So I want to ask you this, where have you given up hope that God says, I want you to push in? And do you trust that God will show up in that place? 
Third is this, is that God accomplishes more than we ever could on our own. Right? And, and I come to a place, a situation, a place of brokenness, and I go, God, I can't do anything. I, I can't change anything. I can't change anyone's heart. I, there's nothing I, in church. I think that place, that moment where we go, I'm at the end of what I can do. If we are responsive to God's work in that moment, it leads us to a place of surrender that says, God, I'm going to trust that you can do what only you can do. And if you read the end of Judges chapter seven, let me just read one quick passage for you. Verse 21. While each man in the Israelite army held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. And what happened, right, is the army of Gideon, they raised their torches and they blew the trumpet as they'd surrounded the Midianite camp. And the Midianites wake up and they see that they're surrounded by all these torches and they literally run away crying. How in the world does God take 300 soldiers and make an army that's innumerable, like a plague of locusts? You can't even count them. He literally makes them run away crying. And God brings miraculous deliverance in a place where Israel was giving up hope. And again, church, the time and place where you feel frustrated and defeated may be exactly the place that God has called you to have redemptive influence to surrender and to yield to his purpose in that moment. So I want to end with two reflective questions. Number one is this, where is God calling you to have redemptive influence? Maybe it's with your roommate in college. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family system that's dysfunctional. Maybe it's in a toxic workplace. Maybe it's in a toxic relationship with a friend or a challenging moment with a neighbor. But God is calling you to have a place of redemptive influence. And we want to step in and be vindictive and gossip and do all the things that culture does. And yet God calls us to an unordinary life, surrender to his plan and purpose. And the place where we're ready to give up, God is just getting started. As we close today, we're going to sing this song. Uh, it's called, I Trust in God. And, and it's one of the refrains throughout the song is, I trust in God. And church, I want us to sing this as a declaration this morning. It's based on uh, Psalm 34 that says, I, I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered. And maybe there's a place this morning, church, you're going, I'm having a hard time trusting God, surrendering into his plan and purpose. And as we sing this, let this be a prayer. God, would you grace me to trust you? Let this be a declaration God, I'm, I'm having a hard time trusting, but I know that scripture says you are trustworthy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of Gideon. That he was such an unlikely person. I mean, he, in an earthly sense, he, he wasn't courageous and strong. He's hiding away down in a hole, hoping he's not found out. And yet you see him and you say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And God, maybe this morning there's somebody here who feels broken and just crushed and their circumstances are hard. Lord, would you meet them? And would you speak your truth over them, Lord? And Father, in the places where we are giving up hope, I pray this morning as we sing this song, let this be a declaration. We trust in you, Lord, because we sought you and you heard and you answered. And God, sometimes you answer in ways that we don't see or anticipate, and so we miss it. And Father, we confess, and we are, we are sorry for the moments where you answered, and it wasn't what we anticipated, and so we missed it, and we accuse you of abandoning us. Because your word, Lord, says that you never leave us nor forsake us, and so we know that you are not a God who abandons. And so, Father, in the places of our brokenness, in the places where we feel abandoned, would you meet us there as a loving Father? 
And would you speak your truth over us? And would you grace us, Lord, to receive your truth and to walk in your truth? And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.